Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Coming up on today's show, Afghanistan is reeling towards the world's greatest humanitarian crisis. Jeff Semple, a reporter with Global National, recently returned from Afghanistan. We'll get his report. Canada announcing they will cap oil and gas sector emissions. The province saying, first we've heard of it in terms of this latest announcement. What does it mean? We'll chat with Dave Yeager. And big decision coming up for Health Canada. Do we or do we not allow children aged 5 to 11 to be vaccinated against COVID-19? So over the weekend, the United Nations warning that Afghanistan is on the brink of becoming the world's worst humanitarian crisis. The Taliban, as you know, who are desperate for foreign aid, are trying to show a friendlier face to the world and persuade the international community that it's changed its ways. But have they? Jeff Semple has just returned from eight days in Afghanistan, and he joins us now to tell us what he saw there. Jeff, thanks for joining us this morning. Appreciate it. Hey, good morning, Shay. Great to be with you. So when we take a look at uh, what was the experience like in, in Taliban-controlled Afghanistan now, how did it go? Yeah, it was quite an experience. Uh, and, you know, after 20 years of war, it seems the Taliban is now launching a new charm offensive, if you like. Uh, we received an invitation letter from the t- new Taliban Ministry of Foreign Affairs upon our arrival in Kabul that essentially allowed us to myself and Stuart Bell to to travel around this capital city, to take pictures, to you know conduct interviews. We monitored a Taliban patrol, went into one of their courthouses, interviewed several Taliban officials. On a number of occasions, the, the Taliban would search us and our bags before we entered the building, for example, as you might expect. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you might not expect, they were extremely apologetic about it. They would apologize profusely, say they were just doing their jobs, wanted to make sure we were safe. Um, and it all seemed to be sort of part of this larger strategy from the Taliban to present this friendlier face to the outside world, to the international community, to countries like Canada, at a time when it is desperate for international recognition and, as you noted, desperate for foreign so I think a lot of people have the perception that it's all talk, it's all a show, but really when you get down to it, it, it it's not being backed up by action. But you're saying, you know, it was different this time around. Well, for us it was, and I think yeah. that's the distinction, is that they have, they're going to, you know, what I think for them are, are pretty remarkable lengths to put on a friendlier face for us. Uh, but it is, you know, ordinary Afghans, when you talk to them on the streets, particularly talk to them, off camera where you start to see the difference um you know certainly people are desperate and the economic situation there undeniably is desperate i mean you you mentioned the u.n warning there off the top i mm. mean you know afghanistan on pace to become worse than yemen worse than syria we saw people selling you know basic belongings uh like everything they own to try and pay for food and firewood in one case there was a family that was literally offering to sell one of its own children to feed the other children. So it is unbelievably desperate there. But this is the picture that Afghan that the Taliban wants to show the world to to convince it to open its purse strings. Um, and you know, we talk to ordinary Afghans. They, you know, they they sort of you, they, you know, there are lots of stories of the Taliban. You know, used to conduct executions out in the open in public soccer stadiums. These days, we're hearing that they're operating more in the shadows. That they are, even in their own words, more politically skilled 
than they right. used to be, say, 25 years ago. So we're hearing stories of kidnappings, of people disappearing, of torture and executions happening inside homes or in outlying areas far from the capital and far from the eyes of yep. the international media. Uh, did you have a chance to speak with Taliban officials themselves? What did you learn from them? Yeah, a lot of interesting conversations, um, including one, I have to say, that was completely surreal. I was talking to a very senior Taliban official and advisor to the prime minister who told us off camera uh, afterwards that he asked, he literally asked me if if I thought and how I thought he could apply to become a refugee in Canada. Apparently, he has some family members in Toronto and was actually interested. Uh, I thought he was kidding at first, but he seemed quite serious uh, in, in moving to Canada as a refugee. So perhaps a sign there that even some Taliban leadership are looking to get out of the country, given how desperate the situation there is. Uh, but when I asked Taliban officials over and over again, you know, whether they had changed their ways from what we saw from their first rule 25 years ago, uh, you know, they all sort of told me different versions of the same thing, that their, you know, that Sharia law has not changed, will never change, and so they haven't changed, but that they are more politically skilled and more politically savvy, and that they are much more intent in achieving these better relations with Canada and its allies. Um, the concern, again, though, as I noted, is from a lot of ordinary Afghans, is that, you know, if the international community gives in um, and starts to, you know, give some concessions to the Taliban and recognize the regime, that then we will see the Taliban rear its its true face, not in the shadows, but, but out in the open, and that it will seek revenge against those who stood against it, including the many Canadian, former Canadian interpreters and those who worked for the Canadian military, hundreds of whom remain trapped inside the country. Yeah, and it's such a volatile situation, but obviously a desperate one at the same time, Jeff. Yeah, it is. And it's, I mean, I, you know, you can't deny how desperate it is. And it's a tough decision facing, you know, the Afghan uh, or facing international the international yeah. community because, yeah, the charities tell you that it's, you know, this 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 international sort of um, standoff between, the inter- between Western countries like Canada and the Taliban, you know, is for good reason, but that it is ultimately the Afghan people who are being punished by it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for your time, Jeff. Really appreciate you joining us. Thanks for highlighting it, Jay. Really appreciate it. Take yeah, care. you bet. That is Jeff Semple, who is a reporter with Global National and has spent some time in Afghanistan. And uh, there's a number of stories that Global News is now running about their experience and about their time in Afghanistan. And of course, I think we all understand that the Taliban recognizes that the way things have gone in that country, now suddenly they have the job of running Afghanistan and caring for the people of Afghanistan. And it is an absolute disaster right now. Um more than half the population has run short of food. Um, and they're saying that with winter coming, it's only going to get worse. Now, there are international um, organizations and countries that have pledged to offer support and do have money ready to go. The question, though, is how do you do that? How do you support the people of Afghanistan and make sure that they get the aid without in some way supporting the Taliban, which is recognized as a terrorist group in many, many countries. It's a tough one. It's definitely not a simple process because I think we all recognize that supporting the people of Afghanistan uh, is something that we're all on board with, but at the same time, the trust that people have in the Taliban is understandably and rightfully very, very low. Just taking a look at the texts, As we're having this discussion, uh, Richard from Calling Lake says, yeah, we're going to give billions to a radical military group so they can fund themselves to fight democracy. George says, right, 
friendly face after how many decades of planning to overtake the government? I won't tell you what I'm really thinking. Another listener says, what is the chance that any of that aid money makes it past the Taliban? Zero. I think that's what the international community is trying to figure out, trying to come up with a way that they can, in some fashion, support the people of Afghanistan and, you know, the internationals who are still there and trying to get out and waiting for, you know, transit out of Afghanistan to the countries where they will ultimately become refugees. How do you support them and how do you support the people on the ground who are facing, um, you know, starvation and freezing to death as the winter arrives? How do you support them at the same time, not support the Taliban? That is the issue that I think a lot of people are having. The simple solution would be to have the Taliban invite international groups into the country to run these programs. Don't have a lot of hope that that's going to happen. So we'll continue to monitor that story. And if there are any developments, we will bring them to you and get an update. So the big news out of COP26 so far, as it relates to Alberta, of course, was the announcement by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau yesterday that Canada will be imposing a hard cap on um, greenhouse gas emissions produced by Canada's oil and gas industry. Now, they promised it in their election campaign, so it shouldn't come as a complete surprise. Um, They had plans during the campaign to force emissions down until they hit net zero in 2050. But we don't know a lot of the details about the announcement yesterday, and and uh, that includes the premier of our province and industry. They have a lot of questions. So let's chat about this. Dave Yeager joins us now. Uh, Dave is an energy policy analyst and an oil and gas writer and author of From Miracle to Menace, Alberta, A Carbon Story. Dave, thanks for your time. Appreciate you joining us today. Hey, good morning. So as I say, the announcement yesterday I don't think came completely out of left field. Indeed, the province and industry are both working on a similar plan as far as we know it in terms of what the federal government is talking about, right? I mean, they're all sort of on the same page. We just don't have details. Well, it's, the, the timing is, uh, you have to look at the event in, in uh, Glasgow, COP26. And yeah, I want to roll back the clock just in case you forgot. In, in, in prior to the uh, 2015 meeting, COP21, the so-called Paris conference, yes. this is when Rachel Notley was newly elected premier, and she now she announced the Climate Action Plan. And she too announced a cap on oil sands emissions. You remember that? Yeah, yeah. hundred million. You know, hundred million megatons, right? Yeah, yeah. She had yeah megatons, and she had the heads of CNRL and Shell and all dutifully Suncor, I think, and Sonos all dutifully lined up on TV with her. I've never seen Mary Edwards look so awkward, the founder of CNRL <laughs> on television, but there he was. And so I look at the timing of the election, and then, and then we, you know, and then and then this is be the third election. Uh, that the prime minister has run on various elements mm-hmm. of of, of uh, regional division on on oil. In 2015, he ran against the uh, North Gateway Pipeline, and then and then in, in 2019, he, or 20 yeah 2019, he was pretty pretty clear that the he was no friend to the oil industry. And then of course this year he ran on the cap. So this is this is this is politics, and yep. of course he's at he's at Glasgow. So there's a bunch of politics there. But what's interesting, and what we should all remember. Having uh, you know, researched this on my book, the first uh, summit was real, the real summit in 1992. The first conference of the parties, number one, I believe, was in Berlin in 1995. And then there was there was a Kyoto Protocol where they all signed up for an international uh, global uh, or global emissions trading system, which never materialized. And so this is a bit of theater there today. And he, he you know, he did it. And, and you know, he, he was noted. Someone thanked him at the G20 meeting. 
as the only only major oil producer with a, with a carbon tax. So it really depends which side of this trade you're on. If you're in the oil patch, you go, well, you know, the old joke goes, the beating shall continue till morale improves. <laughs> you know, like, what you know, what else is new? Well, this but is the in thing. the end, they leave. They always leave these summits, and they go home and face reality. Right. So exactly. we'll see what that we'll see what that means when the rubber hits the road here. Yeah, I mean that is the question, right? You go in and you make this grand proclamation, and you stand up and you say this, which they have done before repeatedly. Yep. And yep. then you go to the people that actually have to do it, being the province and industry, and say, "What does this mean?" And they say, "We have no idea. This was the first we've heard about it." I mean, <laughs> how does well, that exactly. happen? Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't, wouldn't say it's the first they've heard of it. The question is, what does it mean? You know, how do you enforce Yeah, exactly. What's the plan? You know, how do you measure it? Yeah, this, you know, this is this is the, the, the difference, you know, the challenge of turning political campaign provinces and public announcements into, into workable public policy. So what do they do if it's exceeded? You know, what are the dates? Yeah. And in the meantime, I, you know, the industry is, the, the industry's got their, I mean, they know this is coming. Of course. They, they've, they're saved net zero by 2050, and they know what that means. They don't know how to do it yet. And so the industry, fortunately, for the first time in years, of this uh, multi-pronged assault on its future has has got some money. Like, I mean, the prices are high and at, at a great human cost, operating costs are low. So the industry has, has cash flow with which to, uh, to tackle this, which is great. And so, um, you know, just just for the record, like I'm out, I'm out in Lloydminster today, uh, testing a new technology to shut off methane leaks in wells. Like, I, I'll, I'll, the whole, all manner of of people and companies and industries are looking at different yep. facets of actually not not giving speeches, but actually doing it. Well, that's and the so thing. so there's yeah, that's all. And so there's you know, here we go again, and uh, and 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 that's fine. There's no surprise, but you know, the whole all we would hope. And, and this is what I've said in, in prior commentaries is, is just just tell me this is it. This was what disturbed me when they put uh, Gilbo in, in as Minister of Environment. Is is there more? Is there yeah. something we don't know after after the series of events? You know, the pipeline cancellations and the and the carbon taxes and the emission caps and and you know Bill C sixty nine Bill C forty eight. Is there something else coming? If there isn't anything else coming, if this is really what you see is what you get, then then you know I think everybody's got their head around it and is is, is going to give it the old college try and and fulfill the commitment to be the world's most responsible low carbon oil, oil gas producer. I think we can do it. Yeah, I just hope that this is it. That's all. I think that's the most important thing is that that there's nothing else coming beyond what what we've what we've heard. Um, during the election campaign and uh, yesterday. Well, Dave, that that's so important in the fact that a lot of this is, I mean, the politicians will say and do what they're going to do, but the money will ultimately decide the day. And with these kind of announcements and restrictions and caps and all this sort of stuff, the investment goes away. The investment gets shakier. People don't know. The uncertainty uh, causes major problems, right? I mean, you can really do a lot of damage by making proclamations like this without a plan and a clear structure for people who might want to invest in, you know, reduction admissions technology and the oil sands themselves. <laughs> There's no evidence that this matters to this government. Um, you know, when, when, when Trudeau admitted during the campaign, you'll forgive me if I don't pay attention to monetary policy. If you look at the deficit, the, 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 fine, the fiscal side of, uh, of the, uh, this administration going back to 2015 and promised he'd balance the budget by 2019. And he missed by, oh, I don't know, about $120 billion. And then along came COVID. And so there's no evidence that that the the debt 
matters to these folks. Uh, their competitiveness has been brought up, international competitive capital outflows. All of that stuff is in the press every day. Great concern about our tax rates and so on. And the, 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 um, the, the break we thought we were going to get was with the United States was that Biden um, was going to come in with something um, less competitive. One of the issues we had when Trump got elected is he made the United States very competitive mm. by cutting corporate taxes and accelerating uh, tax deductions and so on. So that distorted the level of this. But he's not going to do it either. He's, you know, I mean, Biden on the way to Glasgow asked the G20 to increase oil and gas output. Right. Uh, yeah, and then well, OPEC, which please pump more. And so, and so we we got the Lone Ranger there, and in, in, in charge of the fifth largest oil and gas producer in the world. And uh, you know, the question is, is, is who's going to win? Is it going to be politics, or is it going to be consumers? Right. And the consumers, yeah. you know, will, will not quit buying the product. And then the other factors that are coming into play. Um, they're talking about um, about the tape, the ending the taper in the U.S. right away, which is meaning they're going to quit quit, quit quant, uh, quantitative easing and quit printing money. So there are factors like inflation and the cost of goods that are going to be a, just a great reality check. There's the cost of energy going up all over the world. There's all the situation in Europe and Asia and, and real energy shortages and all the things that come through it. I mean, one of the things they've, they've done is they're, they're shutting down fertilizer plants that run on natural gas in Europe. Which is gonna could affect the food cha- the food supply next year. So there there's other factors uh, once you get away uh, from the theater of of well, these climate conferences and get back in the real world. It's called reality, cover. exactly. That's the point. Yeah, I mean, yeah, eventually yeah, you got to yeah. heat your home and you got to put gas in your car. I mean that, that that's the bottom line. Um, you mentioned uh, Gibault, and I think you know part of what struck me yesterday is the fact that you've got not only Jason Kenney but Rachel Notley and industry all saying they're not talking to us. Um, and I think Gibault was a pretty clear indication from the Liberals in Ottawa that, yeah, we're done talking. We're just, uh, we're moving in this direction. Do you think yeah, I'm overreading I, that? Ah, uh, gee, I hope so. Um, um, this was, this was my reaction when he was appointed, when they, when he was appointed as Minister of the Environment is, is there more coming? Yeah. Or was this, was this really a stick in the eye to, uh, the equalization referendum right. and the and the report in which the uh, foreign funding report was this was this just really really terrible divisive regional wedge politics uh, and I and and and, and, and so um, they've got a country to run yep. Uh, the oil and gas industry is one of the few things that's making money on its own. Like it, I mean, that's a good, incredible thing about oil and gas is when when prices are high, it it, it creates it, generate it kicks out taxes like crazy oh, huge. You know, it, it kicks out royalties about property taxes corporate taxes municipal taxes payroll deductions it buys things and so when you look at the state of the economy as a whole and the parts that are still making uh, coming back and you look at what the world really needs this winter which is food and fuel mm-hmm. really and of course we there's the food side of alberta as well um i i think i think if you can stand if you can if the politics doesn't drive you nuts i i actually think uh, it will be all right. I don't see them shutting down the oil industry. I don't think anybody in their right mind would shut down the oil industry. So it's it's hard on this end to, you know, when you've been a punching bag for so long, uh, to, to, to sort the politics away from reality. But I think in the end, <clears throat> the industry's uh, got strong financial footing. We you got to have the product. And I think common sense is going to prevail here. 
Well, I mean, like you say, Dave, and the bottom line is we all need to recognize there is a reality involved in all of this and all kinds of goals and proclamations and things. They're great, and, you know, you can work down the road to things, but the reality is, like you say, it's food, it's fuel, it's heating our homes, it's putting gas in our car. Those things, they still exist tomorrow. That's the bottom line. It is the disconnect between the people that go to the Glasgow conference and what their view of the world and the the the, uh, the view and needs of the 7.9 billion people that were invited. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's no. really it's really shocking. Actually, we'll see how it goes. I I wonder if I wonder at this time of energy shortages and and energy poverty. I know the African uh, delegation is really annoyed. They the, the, in, at the Paris uh, com, uh, meeting, they not only committed to thirty percent reductions by twenty thirty, but they also said there would be up to a hundred billion a year by now in financial support for the energy transition for poorer countries, none of which has materialized. The African uh, delegation apparently was going to go to uh, uh, COP26 uh, and ask for $1.3 trillion a year by 2030. So, <laughs> a year? <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, no, it's just in- incredible. It's incredible. And, of course, the central banks that have been, that have to support all this stuff and, and um, subsidize energy, of course, are, are, are really pressured now. Uh, because of inflation and all the debt left over from the COVID crisis, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. the flexibility of governments to to uh, to continue to pump liquidity in an economy is is being uh, impaired, and then inflation is real. I was listening to BNN this morning and talking about about what it would mean if if uh, inflation is they say it's uh, it's it's transient inflation, it's temporary inflation caused by the startup supply disruption after the economy recovered because of COVID. And then there's real permanent inflation, which is you know driven by wage increases and stuff like that. And then, of course, that's going to require central banks to keep inflation from running away. They're going to have to yes, raise exactly. interest rates. And bam, all of a sudden, you're in a whole new world. So I, I think the global economic forces are may may affect uh, a level of, um, of fiscal discipline and sanity on the, on the federal government they wouldn't do on their own. Yeah, well, I mean, the pressures are definitely there. Dave, thanks it's so much terrible, for your time. It's a terrible way to solve the problem, but it is it is likely it is to have more way. impact. than yeah, I mean, talking, <laughs> you can't talk sense into them. So. Gotcha. Okay, thanks, Dave. Yeah, no sweat. Thanks for the call. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Um, you know, and Dave makes a really good point, and, and I think if, if you want to see, um, is that possible, where the reality of the world that we're living in sort of overrides a lot of... Um, the the goals and the aspirations and, and the speeches that are given by these leaders, you need, need look no further than last weekend. Now, I'm not saying that we don't need to address climate change. We do. And I think that everybody that's involved in this is on board. The province recognizes that. Um, industry recognizes that. Investment recognizes that. The auto industry recognizes that. The feds recognize that. The international community recognizes that. We're all on the same page. But there's there's going to be a logical progression to this. And you can't get out ahead of it. And I think that's what's happening this week. If you take a look at what happened at the end of the G20 summit in Rome, that is the lead up to COP26. You get the 20 largest economies on the planet together. They have a bunch of different meetings. And then at the end of it, they come forward with a joint statement about this is what we talked about and this is what we're working on. The goal was to have a great kickoff and lots of momentum heading into COP26. We're going to make bold, strong proclamations about addressing climate change. That was the plan. Then they got into the rooms and a lot of these people said, well, wait a minute. Take a look at what's going on with inflation. Take a look at what's going on with energy supply right now. 
we can't completely ignore that. Uh, I mean, gas prices in the States are higher than they've ever been. Same thing in Canada, fuel shortages in the UK, natural gas prices through the roof. It's affecting all kinds of um, different industries, more reliance on coal in other parts of the world. So the reality on the ground is for the world to continue to spin and for things to continue to happen that we as the populace demand and need and rely on, um, you can't get too far ahead in this transition. And it's a natural reaction. Reality will check it. Reality will pull it back. And I think that happened this weekend. But at the same time, this whole conference, the pressure, you've heard all of the rhetoric from all the leaders. This is make or break. Um, and so you get the all or nothing statements on either side of this discussion. And as we've said, there's nowhere to go with those. And the reality lies in the middle with, okay, we're going to work that way. And industry's saying it, and the province is saying it, and everybody's saying it. Um, but let's do it in a realistic way. And I think that's what we kind of ran up into this weekend. What does this announcement that came from the prime minister yesterday mean? Well, it looks like the people in Alberta that actually have to affect this change are now trying to decipher. We've got some interesting days ahead here. Just think about how heated the whole discussion over the vaccination uh, against COVID-19 has been. Uh, How divisive and vitriolic and just nasty it has gotten. Well, a new front may well open in that battle very, very soon. Uh, Today, in fact, uh, the CDC in the United States is uh, hearing submissions and going to make a decision on whether or not to vaccinate children aged 5 to 11 in the U.S. Uh, Health Canada also facing a similar decision very, very soon. Uh, Other countries have, and um, it's heated. It's interesting. So we, what can we learn from the way other countries have tackled this? And if we want to go about doing this decision in a way that doesn't cause, um, well, it's going to, but cause as little amount of consternation as possible, what do we need to be aware of? Joining us, we have Anthony Skelton. And Anthony is an associate professor of philosophy and a core member at the Rotman Institute of Philosophy at Western University. Anthony, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Shay. Nice to be here. Yeah, uh, I think this is going to be a very interesting discussion. You know, obviously the government has to try and make a decision based on um, the evidence that they see before them, free from politics. But we know all the discussion around this vaccine debate has been extremely political. So how do they go about trying to make this decision in the best way possible? Right. So, uh, like you said, um, Health Canada has to make a decision now uh, as to whether or not to approve the uh, COVID-19 vaccination for children aged 5 to 11. Um, As you also suggested, uh, it depends partly on the science that they uh, have had a chance to look at. They're going to get results from the clinical trials from uh, the drug manufacturer, Um, But it's not only a matter, as you also pointed out, of mere science. It's also an an ethical or, um, as you said, political decision. So the science will tell you, is it safe? Is it effective? Uh, Et cetera. And then the politics ethics will say, well, should we we authorize this? Do we think this is something we should um, tell our population uh, is safe and uh, is fit for use? So let's break those two apart, because one of them seems fairly simple, and that is you look at the health risks of COVID versus the health risks of being vaccinated. Simple cost-benefit analysis, one way or the other. That one seems simple to me. Am I right? Right. So I think, yes, the science will say, um, you know, here's what we found are the benefits of 
vaccination, right? So to prevent hospitalization, to prevent um, uh, 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 death, to prevent uh, ICU admission, mm-hmm. you know, which is a consequence of uh, preventing infection. And then, you know, there, here are some uh, uh, costs. Uh, associated uh, with them. So it can, t- it can sort of tell you what those things are, but it can't really tell you what's best or what it's, uh, you know, all things considered good or right to do. And that's sort of the easy part of the discussion, because the other part is weighing in the other other considerations, and they can be a little more ambiguous. Right. Well, so ethical considerations, um, you know, enter the picture, and there uh, there tends to be, but not always, a bit more disagreement uh, than there is in cases of science. So I think there's lots of disagreement about the science as well, so how yeah. valuable is uh, the information we get and so on. I mean, in this case, we have good uh, you know, data uh, from uh, the manufacturer. We have good real-world data on the safety and effectiveness of vaccines. So look, looks like there we're on pretty solid ground, and I think it's a fairly easy transition there to say, well, look, if we've got this safe and effective vaccine, we know that COVID-19 infection is is very dangerous, right? Uh, it can cause hospitalization, cause death, cause ICU admission, maybe not so much in children, but there are also long-term negative effects on children, including things like long COVID and, uh, you know, various cognitive uh, and other kinds of uh, difficulties that it causes. And there, I think, you know, there's an important element to be brought into the equation that says, look, even if it doesn't cause death or uh, hospitalization as much in these young children, it can cause these other things, even in children who are asymptomatic. And do we want to take that chance with COVID infection over uh, uh, a vaccination, which, yes, does have some risk, mm-hmm. but those are very small and very manageable. Um, what can we learn from other countries? You know, Norway started and then stopped, which I think is the worst thing you can do. The messaging has to be clear, concise, and transparent, right? What can we learn from other jurisdictions? Right. So if you look at the United Kingdom, for example, um, they delayed vaccination of children age 12 to 15. Um, you know, Canada went ahead in May uh, of uh, this year uh, with vaccinating children. Um, and what you're seeing now in the autumn in the UK is that lots of children are being infected. Uh, rates of infection are high. School closures are occurring and so on. And I think, you know, given that, um, you know, given that uh, comparison, we can, I think, conclude pretty uh, uh, clearly that vaccination of children in that age group is uh, all things considered beneficial uh, for them. Um, and you're seeing, of course, Native Kingdom that they're changing tack. They're saying that, you know, initially only one dose would be given. Now they're switching to two doses. You know, their uh, recommender uh, said, you know, we won't give it to them. And then their uh, medical officers of health and their four nations overruled them. So I think it's a very unclear message, likely to cause lots of distrust, whereas I think the way we did things here in Canada is much more effective. We're seeing cases dropping in that age group, and I think we should continue on uh, on that course in this particular age group um, as well. When it comes to the messaging and, and the transparency, and I mean, we've yeah. seen countless cases where they've really messed that up, and it's caused, I think, a lot of the problem that we're in today. Um, how important is it to just present the evidence and say, this is our decision, this is why we made the decision, and then, and then that's it. That's your decision. I mean, transparency, as you're suggesting, is really key here. A, a transparent, clear message 
telling you what the science is, the up, most up-to-date science, and importantly, the way in which Health Canada had evaluated the science that they received from the drug manufacturer, and then what are the kind of ethical principles involved in this. I mean, we can see them very clearly in cases where we say, okay, well, some populations are more vulnerable mm-hmm. than others, so they should receive them first. So I think also in this case, we want to say, well, look, here are the benefits, here are the risks. We, we are very cognizant of the risks of vaccine, but we should be much more cognizant of the risks, the unknown and uncertain risks of COVID-19 infection. Those have to be brought into, and we take those seriously and think, all things considered, they, you know, uh, uh, together with other known um, uh, negative effects of COVID-19 infection, do point to a clearly a favorable cost-benefit ratio uh, for vaccination for children in this age group. Excellent. Um, Anthony, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate you joining us. Thank you so very much for having me and uh, have a good day. Yeah, you too. Uh, Anthony Skelton uh, joining us to talk about the ethics of decision-making on a decision that I think is going to be very important. Uh, He's an associate professor of philosophy and a core member of the Rotman Institute of Philosophy at Western University. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.